0: Hey now! We are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data, with your WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. We are here just two days after WWE Clash of Champions to break down everything else that happened in the world of WWE. We're going to talk everything from Raw. On Monday night, some leftovers from SmackDown and the WWE draft that is set to begin on October 9th, coming up very soon. Before we get to that, if you have not yet heard our Instant Analysis podcast from WWE Clash of Champions, Gold Rush, then pause this show right now. Go back in the archives and listen to our last episode where we talk about everything that happened on the pay-per-view, the biggest storylines, and what we expect to happen going forward. Once you've listened to that, hit pause on this and let's get on with it and talk everything else that happened in WWE over the last few days. Now, before we get into the show, you guys know how this works. Go ahead, follow The Silver King on Twitter at SilversteinAdam, but more importantly than that, follow the show at Getting Overcast. And more important than even that, I need you all to head on over to Apple Podcasts, go to the rating and review section of this show, leave us a five-star rating and write some type of review. Let us know how much you love the program. While we do this for your adulation somewhat, uh, we also want to expand the show and grow. And the best way we can do that is by getting front and center on iTunes and a bunch of podcast platforms. And every single time you leave a review and a rating, and it's five stars. It helps us towards that goal. Also, go ahead. Do me a favor. It's not necessarily the season of giving. We're, we're pretty close to that. But do me a favor. Tell your family and friends. Let them know that you love the show. Talk to coworkers, anyone that you know who likes professional wrestling. Hell, go on your own social media accounts. Share the link to the show. This is my favorite wrestling podcast. You guys should check it out. All of that is very helpful, and I personally would appreciate it. Now, normally... For these WWE shows, I bring in someone else, Vintage, Chris Vanini, to join me to break everything down. Chris, last minute, had a little bit of a personal issue, is unable to be on the show. He's completely fine. He will be back next week. So Silver King is going to be writing solo today, talking WWE, which means it's going to be a little bit of a quicker show, but it also means I can include a very special interview that I have been waiting to drop on all of you. The Silver King spoke with Alexa Bliss last week, multi-time WWE Women's Champion host of her own brand new podcast. We had a great conversation that got into everything from her current character in WWE, some of the awesome things that she's done throughout her career, as well as her new podcast, and we both share a couple of stories about what made us uncool when we were younger. But getting on to today's show, you guys know it's time to talk WWE. And the way we do that on the Getting Over Professional Wrestling Podcast is by jumping into the main event. event. And for this week, I'm going to start with the WWE draft because that has now become the biggest and most important storyline in WWE right now. You can love the Roman Reigns Tribal Chief stuff, but the thing that sets the stage for Really, a calendar year in WWE is the draft because, yes, they do make changes here and there, and you certainly saw that on Monday night. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But for, by and large, the most part, the storylines that you will see unfold over the course of a given year are affected by the rosters on these individual shows. And with SmackDown on Fox and Raw on USA Network, they have even hammered it home into WWE even more that they want unique rosters, and they want these talents to be featured on their individual shows. So we do have the WWE Draft coming up Friday, October 9th, will be the first night. Monday, October 12th, will be the second night, and I'm glad to see it back because it was definitely needed, and that does have me anticipate those shows. It should be a good ratings boost as well. There's a lot to discuss here. But ultimately, everything depends on how the draft is handled in terms of the execution and the superstars that move between Raw and SmackDown. So let's start with the timing. This is my biggest issue. They only promoted it about 12 days in advance when they should have been doing so, in my opinion, for a month, wondering during Clash of Champions how the results of those matches would ultimately impact the title holders and therefore the draft. And with Survivor Series coming up in November... The actual date of the draft being held in October only gives us about one month for all these superstars in KFABE to establish brand loyalty. For me, it would have been better if they did it immediately after payback. Maybe you promote, hey, we're doing payback, and then Monday on Raw is the start of the WWE draft. Boom, boom, one week it's done, and now everything is refreshed. For me, that would have been a smarter use of it. At least it gives them two months to establish the brand loyalty. And then you get into it. But really, theoretically, the draft should happen like in the middle of the year. And there should be a six-month span between that and Survivor Series. I understand why they don't do it. They're, it's something that they're using to be basically the season premiere for their shows on Fox and USA Network. And if you remember, WWE usually does something a little bit different in its season premiere. Sometimes they change a theme song or a logo in this case, I think it's going to be the draft every year, and certainly they'll do some of that other stuff too. The second part is the format. With the initial draft last year, it was pretty easy. Everyone was available, and eventually everything got sorted out. But what about this year? I want it explained to me. Are certain people like champions protected? And maybe is it more like an expansion draft in pro sports where there's exemptions? You're allowed to pick like five superstars on your brand who cannot be drafted, and everyone else is up for grabs? Or is it another free-for-all? Um, which would maybe look a little bit more like a superstar shakeup where they peop- random people get drafted, others don't, and that's just what they do. So as I wanted it last time, this needs to be treated real. It was not totally real last year. They tried and failed to do it, it, they almost thought they were going to make it real by giving us things like war rooms. And that's kind of where we'll get into the presentation aspect of it. This is my third point. It was awful last year. The idea of them doing war rooms was great. The idea that you would have people from SmackDown and Fox, hopefully mixed in with like Triple H on one show and, and Stephanie McMahon on the other show that would have been good. It would have felt real. Like they're agonizing over decisions. They have a big board they're checking. Instead, the war rooms were so stupid. They had them pre-taped with actors doing fake celebrations, people in face paint. It made the whole thing look like a joke as opposed to what war rooms for like the NFL draft, for example, were or really like where you have people waiting and watching, they announce the pick, they celebrate, then they call the person on the phone. Those are some of the elements that I feel need to be added here where someone from Fox, let's say, drafts Seth Rollins over to SmackDown and Rollins gets a phone call, even if it's a one-sided phone call backstage and Rollins is like, look, I had a really good thing going. We were we were pushing the greater good on Raw, but I'm excited to get the opportunity to now do that on SmackDown. Make it feel real to some degree and not like a complete joke, which is what it was last year. You can say what you will for what superstars were on what brands, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but you can't have a war room with a canned response going absolutely crazy because they draft, I think it was Natalia, where like Charlotte Flair and Sasha Banks are still out there and available, right? That's not going to work for me. So I appreciate somewhat the attempt last year, but it was just a, it was bad across the board, right? They had Stephanie McMahon announce every draft pick when it would have been nice if each brand had a different representative and it didn't even need to be an authority figure because they were trying to go away from that. But you could have Shawn Michaels announce for one brand and Triple H announce for the other or bring Mick Foley back just to do that. There there are so many people that they have at their disposal. The Big Show, Christian, Edge, all these people could fill these roles. Booker T, another good example. Um, There's so many people they have at their disposal, and yet they just threw Stephanie McMahon out there for both shows and had her announce every pick. That's not what we want. I do have a sneaking suspicion Adam Pearce is going to be in that role this year, and he will announce them for both brands. I don't know that to be the case. I'm just speculating. But my overall point here is the presentation is just as important as the format. And then the biggest key, of course, is the results. This is obviously number one. After the draft last year, WWE's rosters were incredibly unbalanced. And while they eventually fixed it, they made a couple trades. And over the course of the calendar year, I think with three exceptions... WWE explained every single talent swap that was made on their shows. And there were probably a dozen or so. So I give them credit for that. You know, you have to give credit where it's due. And when you say, don't treat us like idiots, make this feel like real sports. They had picks to be named later and they had cash considerations and, and, you know, a ton of things that got, I think if memory serves, I'd have to really look, but I think Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross wound up getting maybe drafted separately or whatever, but they both wound up on SmackDown as compensation as part of Brock Lesnar ending up switching brands because he needed to because of the title situation. Uh, I think Apollo Cruz was like the, a remainder left over from a trade they announced uh, when he got moved over to Raw. So they've really done a good job over the course of the year to explain this away, and we'll talk later about the ones they didn't. But the idea is at the end of the draft, it should be planned out to such a degree that your rosters are balanced. You look at the rosters right now and look, things have changed. Storylines have have necessitated adjustments and there's been injuries and stuff. But if you look right now, there are no women's tag teams, zero on SmackDown. There's four of them on Raw. There's only two healthy men's tag teams on Raw, the Champions, the Street Profits, and of course now Dolph Ziggler and Robert Roode, who is back, and I'm guessing they're going to be a tag team. But granted, there's only like four on SmackDown. The point is, for a while, there was like one on Raw and like five on SmackDown. Complicating matters even more right now is that four people randomly got added to the Raw roster over the last two weeks. And this is two weeks before the draft is starting. So you're thinking, why the hell are you doing that now when you're just about to have a draft? Again, we'll talk about that later in those circumstances. The point here is that the WWE draft always, always has the potential to be good. It's just that WWE, especially in the last draft and with the superstar shakeups, they failed to deliver on it. So while I would love to be optimistic about you know, how good this draft could be considering how entertaining SmackDown has been, I have to be pessimistic because of how disappointing Raw has been. And when you consider these are coming from the same company, it averages out to mediocre. And I ultimately think the draft may end up being mediocre. But as with everything else with WWE, and with wrestling in general, really, you can criticize ahead of time, you can praise ahead of time, but the proof is in the pudding. At the end of the day, it's either going to be a success or a failure. And that is something we will break down on this podcast by the time it happens, because based on our schedule, both of those drafts are going to come before we have an episode. We will tape an episode the day after the second day of that draft on that following Tuesday, and we will break down the draft. Now, we will have a week in between. Chris Vanini will be back on the show next Tuesday, so I will get some of his takes on the WWE draft as well, but I did feel, considering it was just recently announced, that I should break it down myself to kick things off. Now, before we talk about the second half of the main event and Raw, we do need to mention that Raw in totality seemed to be depleted significantly of talent this week, and there's only so much of it that to me was obvious, and I'm not sure how much it did or did not affect storyline. So you saw it, for example, with Retribution not being there, we'll talk about them a little bit later, you saw Mandy Rose make her debut with a tag team partner, was that out of necessity or was that by design? And some other things happened on the show. Mustafa Ali made his return to actually Raw. And I thought, based on what we talked about in the Clash of Champions instant analysis, that might be the case as a planned storyline. But was it? Or was it just a scenario where they needed bodies because people weren't there, so they brought him back? So these are all questions that are very tough to answer without knowing what happened inside. But it does need to be said that we saw a lot of different faces on Raw Monday, And, you know, certainly last couple of weeks, Braun Strowman's been there. And I think with Raw Underground, you can almost separate that from the Raw roster, separate it from reality a little bit. But on TV, we saw a lot of people that had not been there. And the question is, was that out of necessity due to COVID? And if so, we probably need to give WWE a little bit of a break and say, look, yeah, you have separate rosters, but sometimes, you know, necessity dictates you make certain moves. And if that's what you had to do, that's what you had to do to put on an entertaining show, which is what they thought they gave us, and moments were, but largely Raw was still pretty rough. So the second half of the main event has to be the primary storyline on Raw, which is Drew McIntyre and Randy Orton basically setting up a Hell in a Cell match at the next pay-per-view. It's not official. There wasn't even a real challenge to that degree, but it's pretty obvious they are going in that direction. The show started with Ric Flair, Shawn Michaels, Big Show and Christian all in the ring basically to celebrate screwing over Randy Orton. They barely got a chance to speak and then Drew McIntyre comes out and he's strangely to me low energy the entire time where he doesn't even seem excited to be there with the legends, doesn't seem excited to be WWE champion. He's just kind of going through the paces and I don't think that was character work. I just think maybe something was going on with Drew or maybe they told him to tone it down. I, I don't really know. He just was weird on the mic the entire night, very different from the way he has presented himself. And I wasn't sure why that was the case. Orton interrupted him. He mentions hell without, of course, saying hell in a cell, says he will get another title match just because. And I don't know why Orton didn't just make the easy call here and say, look, it took five dudes to beat me. So I deserve a real one-on-one match where no one can interfere. I'm going to challenge you to hell in a cell. That's the most obvious thing to say. Now, I guess maybe they wanted to push it a week. So if Orton says that next week, I'll let it go. But it just seemed convoluted for them to do it the way they did it. So now this is continuing. And Chris and I did expect that would be the case. We, On our instant analysis, we guessed we were going to get one more Drew McIntyre, Randy Orton match and guessed it would be Hell in a Cell. But it does not make much sense for me if you are going to change the title to change it in Hell in a Cell, where... McIntyre would cleanly get beaten, presumably, by Randy Orton, versus an ambulance match where he could lose the title by just getting thrown into an ambulance, having people attack him, etc. So we will see what ends up happening. McIntyre issues an open challenge. Again, not much energy or passion there. The other guys end up, the legends are all backstage playing poker in the legends lounge. And then two segments later, we get Andrade coming out And he's on his own because Angel Garza injured himself. He either hurt his hip or his knee at the pay-per-view. He rips Zelina Vega, says she's nothing without him, wants a fight. But he's basically giving an open challenge without taking the open challenge that was just laid out by the WWE champion, a guy he beat for the NXT championship just a couple years ago. I understand. I know about a bunch of you are about to type me. I know McIntyre said he wanted a new challenger. And I know Andrade got a title opportunity while they were in the WWE Performance Center shortly after McIntyre won the title at WrestleMania. My criticism is that the segments were back-to-back, almost. There was one in between, the match with Asuka and Zelina Vega. We'll talk about that later. So it was just weird that they have two open challenges and the second person making the open challenge isn't just accepting the title match or trying to and then Having someone come out and say, hey, uh, you know what? It needs to be a person he's never fought before. Or had him say, you know, I would accept your challenge, Drew, but you said it needs to be someone you never fought before. So I'm going to do an open challenge of my own. Like, it was just so strange for them to do it that way. And the ultimate, you know, shot to the balls, I guess, the kick to the groin for me, is you now have Andrade cutting a promo, which how rare is that, that we get that opportunity? It's decent enough. You know, it wasn't terrible. And the person who answers it is Keith Lee, who squashes Andrade in a three-minute match. Lee looked great taking down Andrade like that, but they did all of it just for Andrade to basically job out. This is one of the few guys you have left who's healthy, who could be challenging for things. And you just kill him to Keith Lee. So, you know, I do think it's a good possibility that Charlotte and Andrade, because they do move couples together get moved over to SmackDown in the draft, so if this was him, them writing him off Raw, I'm 100% okay with that. But if it wasn't that, it still hurts me deep down inside to see Andrade, a guy who should be not just a mid-card champion, because he was that this past year, but a strong mid-card champion, or a strong main event challenger, a guy who doesn't have a WWE title match on TV, but has it built up strong in a pay-per-view. It hurts to see him lose to Keith Lee in three minutes, though... I will say credit where it's due, they gave Keith Lee a little bit of momentum back after all those DQ finishes. So at least they got a clean win over a former champion, mid-card champion uh, in that regard. We'll move over to the main event, the WWE Championship match, Drew McIntyre defeating the surprise return of Robert Rude. So it was a nice surprise to have Rude back, but I was even more surprised he got to use his entrance music considering all these issues WWE is having, with the CFOs and their new record company. WWE, the big reason they've been changing themes recently is because they aren't wanting to pay the royalties that seem to be actually decently unfair based on what I've been able to read that the record company is demanding from them. So they've been changing all these themes, Keith Lee, Alistair Black, you saw that, we'll talk about that later, and numerous other people, but Glorious is 100% what Robert Roode is about. It's literally his entire character, at least it has been on the main roster, so for them to maybe pull that away from him, I don't know what would happen, really. Like, I think he would just become truly another guy. So, and that's their own fault. That's their booking fault because they booked him as his entrance music, being the gimmick. They in, in NXT, this, yeah, his entrance music was awesome, but he was built as a suited champion, a guy who really took his business seriously. Like they gave him a character. On in WWE on the main roster, he's just glorious. He's just the gimmick. He's the entrance music, basically. So, you know, I, I I hope that he, they make an exception and they're willing to pay, I guess, the royalties for that particular theme. And they just let it go because I don't know what else they would do without him in that spot or without him having that theme, I guess, is, is the choice of words I'm trying to uh, use here. My biggest gripe, though, with the entire match, by the way, was they didn't even mention Okay. They didn't even mention that Rude is the one who McIntyre beat for the NXT championship. This only happened a couple of years ago. Robert Rude is a surprise challenger. So how easy is it to say he wants revenge for Drew McIntyre taking his NXT title back in whatever the hell year that was, 2017, let's say. So whatever. Uh, it was an easy storyline and they should have used it. Rude isn't the strongest in the ring, but this was well wrestled. It was really a classic like 1990s WWE-style match. Rude kicked out of the Future Shock DDT. McIntyre then kicked out of the Glorious DDT uh, at 2.5. Then McIntyre reversed another one, ran the ropes, hit the Claymore, and got the win. This was a good job by WWE promoting an Open Challenge title match and then not just following through with it in the main event, but doing it with a surprise return and booking a quality bout, all things considered. They gave us a good match, with your WWE champion in the main event, and they gave us a reason to look forward to it. What what was really strange is you had Drew McIntyre make the challenge on the opening segment. They had the match at the last segment, and you didn't see Drew McIntyre the rest of the night. Yeah, you did have Dolph Ziggler kind of tease that he had a challenger for Adam Pearce very late in the third hour. But where was mentioning this at the end of hour one or during hour two Having McIntyre backstage walk up to Adam Pierce. "Hey, has anyone answered my challenge yet? All right, I'm still waiting." Like, pop, pop in with the legends and say, "Hey guys, what's going on?" And "Hey, who's your, who's challenging you? I don't know. I'm still waiting." These are all cowards back here. I don't know. Something, right? Do something to to tell the story over the course of the entire show. Instead, they just you needed to basically have watched an hour one to know why there was an open challenge in the main event at the end of hour three. So. I thought that was a little bit lazy on their part. And also, it's a good way to fill time, which they clearly needed to do on this episode because they didn't have Raw Underground, something else we'll talk about later. So at the end of the show, though, we did get a pretty inventive finish with Orton having been disguised as a janitor the entire show. You saw MVP throw a drink at him earlier and he didn't react to it, even though he turned his head and like you're like, oh, that janitor noticed that a drink was thrown at him, right? Uh, so he, he opens the door, he puts on night vision goggles, turns off the lights, lays out all the legends with a chair. Orton made it look like he was leaving at the start of the show, so he fooled everyone. Was this a bit dumb or silly? Sure, yeah, a little bit. But it it, it totally fit his Viper character, uh, and it was unique. It's not something that they've really done in WWE before. Yeah, you've seen it probably in action movies and stuff, but this was unique to wrestling, and it was different. They needed a way to take out all these guys without actually taking out Ric Flair. My guess is that Christian and Shawn Michaels weren't cleared to actually take bumps in a major way, or maybe they didn't want to clear them for that. Big Show, I would assume has been because he's wrestled recently. So I just thought it was inventive and smart and a good way to get more heat on Orton. You know, you can argue about whether having another Drew McIntyre-Randy Orton match and continuing this feud, just like they've continued every feud on Raw ad nauseum for multiple weeks, you can make an argument about whether that's a good idea. But in terms of the storyline... It was a pretty good. You know, I mean, it was it was good enough, I guess. I'm trying to be not the biggest pessimist, I guess, with the WWE stuff. Raw, this Raw was not as bad as the couple disastrous Raws that we've had over the last few weeks. So with that, I'll, you know, I'll give it a one thumb up, not two. It gets one thumb up. It pushes the storyline forward. You know, we're still a few weeks out for Hell in a Cell. And my anticipation next week is that we will get an official challenge whether it's from McIntyre, whether it's from Orton, that sets up the Hell in a Cell match. The question is, what the hell do you do in the weeks leading into Hell in a Cell? And I, that's where I'm stuck, you know? So that is the conclusion of our main event. And with that, let's get over into this interview that I conducted with multi-time WWE Women's Champion Alexa Bliss. Before we get into the interview, let's talk about Bliss' segment from SmackDown on Friday night. We had Lacey Evans beat Alexa Bliss basically by disqualification. I found this match and everything that happened here pretty entertaining, all things considered. Bliss basically called Evans a Karen in her pre-match promo. And that popped me because that would actually be a good gimmick for Lacey Evans, being one of these suburban women who just complains all the time and, and makes big deals out of things that shouldn't be and blah, blah, blah. I mean, not to the degree of what that's become in culture. You know, we don't want to go to that, but that type of gimmick isn't really that bad. She is a a mother, she has a daughter, you know, it makes a lot of sense for her to kind of go in that direction. So it would be cool if WWE actually leans into it. The match itself wasn't anything special, it wasn't very long, but it was a fresh matchup for a change. Lacey Evans and Alexa Bliss felt like something I really hadn't seen before. And with a lot of the repetition that we've been getting, you know, that, that was nice. Uh, You saw The Fiend's laugh interrupt the middle of the match. I thought that was a nice touch. And then The Fiend's, that screeching music that comes over the loudspeakers, that basically stopped Lacey Evans in her tracks and somewhat came to Alexa Bliss's rescue, I guess, after Evans missed her moonsault. Bliss got angry this time instead of catatonic. She kneed Evans in the face and beat her so bad that the referee called a disqualification. That was a little bit silly because... Bliss didn't do anything illegal. And you saw in, you know, you would see, you ended up seeing a couple of nights later at Clash of Champions, the referee called a similar end to a match, but that was a ref stoppage because Jay couldn't defend himself anymore. So that really should have been what it was here that Bliss was hurting her so bad that Evans couldn't defend herself. And it really should have been a ref stoppage win for Alexa Bliss, at least as far as I'm concerned. So then Bliss still kind of angry, hits Sister Abigail again, and you see her looking crazy with her hair all messed up, some of those dreadlock braids flipped over to the front, and just all looking crazy, and then she's grinning really wide, just like The Fiend, as the let-me-in sound hits. As if that was not good enough, Roman Reigns' music hits, as Bliss is walking to the back. He pays her no mind, but she lingers in the background, and stares a hole right through him for what felt like a full minute. It was not that dissimilar from where we've seen The Fiend show up behind someone and stare at them without them knowing. I popped huge for this. It made me wonder, is she possessed by The Fiend? Is that what this can be? Is it not a possession so much, but a change in mentality where they're aligned somehow I just don't know, but it leaves me asking all of these questions and it's great character work from Alexa Bliss, which is something that I talked about in my interview with her coming up momentarily. But I popped so big for this that I will say, if it wasn't for the Roman Reigns, Jey Uso go-home stuff that we praised so much on the Instant Analysis podcast, this would have been the best moment on the entire show. And I think Alexa Bliss and whoever's helping with the storyline, whether it's just Bray Wyatt or whether it's a a bunch of people all working together. They deserve a lot of credit for telling a really interesting story that I personally at least feel we have not seen a women's superstar in WWE do to this level. I'm not talking about a storyline in general. I'm talking about a storyline like this. And that is a topic I discussed With Alexa Bliss on our wide-ranging interview that we're going to get to right now. Like I said, we talked about her recent character changes, her career in WWE, and her brand new podcast that has already debuted, and I believe is two episodes in. So go ahead, listen to my interview with Alexa Bliss right now, and I will chat with you on the other side. Thrilled to welcome WWE superstar Alexa Bliss to the show for the very first time. You can catch Alexa, every Friday on SmackDown, airing at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox, as well as in her brand new podcast, Uncool with Alexa Bliss, which you can listen to, well, basically, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can listen to that one as well. Alexa, so much to talk to you about today, but I am really curious about the podcast. Was this something that you pitched to WWE? Did they come to you with the idea? How did you decide to not only... Get into podcasting, but do one basically about all the cringe stuff that happened when we were kids. Um,
1: uh, you know, WWE actually approached me about it. They were the team was like, Hey, would you be interested in doing a podcast? And I was like, A podcast, and I was like, I guess and I was like, I mean, I'm I love talking to people and I like talking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really, I wasn't really familiar with the podcast world at the time, and you know, they were like, Okay, cool, it could be. You know, it could really be whatever we want it to be. And it started off as so many different things. It started off as like a podcast about coffee, like a coffee themed podcast. And then it was um, a little between two ferns-ish. And then it was games. And then we did a bunch of demo episodes where we just kind of grabbed some Doe Davis superstars. And we uh, just interviewed them talking about, you know, literally anything and everything to see what stuck and what really was talking about the embarrassing moments growing up, mm-hmm. and for me, you know, I grew up in the nineties, two thousands, and so that's when we were like, what if we ask everyone their, you know, most cringeworthy moments growing up? But I also interviewed the people that I looked up to in the two thousands and nineties, and to see what they were like growing up. And um, unfortunately, we were able to get these guests and amazing guests on the podcast and it's kind of snowballed from there. And it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, I got to talk to people that I never thought in a million years, I could ask, you know, what was your first date like? Or what's your most right. awkward moment? And it was a lot of fun.
0: Are you someone who like, is nostalgia a big part of your life in general? Do you watch a lot of maybe not necessarily the shows, but do you listen to the music from growing up the 90s, the early 2000s? We're not the exact same age, but pretty similar. And I just find myself like I I get into new music today, but I'm still kind of like I like hip hop from the late 90s. And and for you, maybe it's a little bit more pop music, but I just can't get away from it necessarily.
1: Oh, 100 percent. Thanks. Like, that's that's me to a T. Anytime anyone rides with me in the car, they know they're listening to 2000s, 90s music. It is what it is. Uh, My phone is uh, a mix of a bunch of different things on my phone with music wise. but. Definitely 80% of it is probably 90s, 2000s music.
0: Now, we're going to talk about some of the pretty damn cool stuff that you've done so far in your WWE career. But before we do that, let's get uncool for a moment. Let's do like a podcast inception type of deal, right? What is one, what's one childhood moment or memory, maybe sports related, I know you played a lot of sports and did cheerleading, whatever the case, where you look back on it these days and you shudder, maybe a style, a way you did your hair. I don't know. I don't know. You know your life better than me. But what is that one thing that you look back on and you just say, I cannot believe I did that?
1: Um, it wouldn't be a style or a sports moment. But I remember So growing up, I had the biggest crush on my neighbor, Corey. He was the skateboarder kid that lived next door. And we grew up together next door. And I just always had the biggest crush on him. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day I was riding my bike. Um, out in the cul-de-sac area and uh Corey was outside on his on his little skateboard and i remember just you know trying to like be cool and be like hi you know whatever <laughs> and as i'm like riding my bike past his house mind you i live next door i like waved i was like hey Corey!" and he was like hey what's up and then as soon as i like went to say something else i ran my bike into my dad's parked car and just <laughs> ate it just literally, because I wasn't looking, you know, and I just yeah. ate it so hard onto my dad's car, stinted in the car, broke my bike. It was very, uh, not my best
0: moment. That's like straight out of a sitcom, which is really funny. You know oh, what I mean?
1: like and It 100% happened too. That's the worst part. That that, that stuff's real. It really happened. And it happened to me. And it was so embarrassing. So,
0: since you said that, I'll expose myself a little bit. So, uh, back in those days, in the nineties and stuff, remember, remember when guys used to part their hair down the middle? And like it would be all the way down to oh, the yeah. side. and It was a cool look. So I tried to do that, right? Because it was cool. The popular kids in school were doing it. And I thought I'll get the girls if I wear my hair like that, right? Real stupid reasoning there. Um, problem is I have I have a ton of hair and like almost a, if I let it grow out a fro type of style. And it wouldn't stay yeah. down. It wouldn't stay down. So I I literally went to my mother's salon. This is really embarrassing. I actually can't even believe it. I'm saying this and I don't even have to, but I went to my mother's salon and did straightener in my hair and to keep it down. And it still didn't work. It was the most embarrassing, like walking into school, like trying to part it. It looked good when I got out of the car, but then like two periods in, it would fluff up. Oh my God. It was the worst.
1: Oh my God. That's the worst too. Like, especially when you thought you looked really good going into the day and it rained or the humidity hit and. You know, oh, I remember that was the worst for me because I would straighten my hair. I spend hours straightening my hair because my hair was naturally curly, you know, before all the bleach and stuff. <laughs> um, right. It was super curly, super, super curly. And I would, it would take me hours to straighten it. And then after I finally got it right, I would go to school and either it would start to rain or the humidity would hit. And I would just have just this. Fuzzy, not cute hair, and it was so frustrating to me. And I remember, like, this is another thing too. You know when the girls over straighten their hair and they have like the crispy pieces that stand up,
0: right? Like right, in the yeah. front of
1: their hair because they burned their hair up. I remember a girl in my class, Amanda, used to take lip gloss and like full-on <laughs> lip gloss, clear lip gloss, and like flick it down on her head, and because it weighed it down, I felt like, was just so weird. Like just
0: stuff we used to do. Yeah. And it's you, you think you're doing it to look good. And now you look back on it and you're just like, there's no way it ever looked good. Yeah. Oh, it's ridiculous. Like, I did it for two months and I said, look, I'm going to a salon, which is absurd. And it looks bad. My gym teacher took me aside and he's like, look, you know, I'm not, this was back in the nineties. So I guess they were a little bit more flexible. But he's like, look, I'm not trying to like crap on you or anything, but you should probably just shave your head. And I did, like, no joke. Three days later. I, I cut all my hair off I, and the, like when I walked into school, the, all my friends were like, dude, thank God you did that. You know, it looked really bad, but no one would tell me in the moment, you know? That's the worst. That is the worst. Anyway, all right. So when you debuted on the WWE main roster, you know, you got you got a pretty strong push right out of the gate. You have, you've had to this point, as I said, a very cool, accomplished career in WWE. You were champion for a few months, ended up winning a bunch of titles, in a pretty short period of time, especially maybe compared to some of the other women on the roster at the time, I've always wondered what it was like for you being put in that position so quickly and whether you ever felt not so much jealousy, but maybe animosity backstage considering how heavily you were featured very soon after going to the main roster. Um, I mean, you have to know,
1: you know, it's, it... It was definitely a whirlwind going onto the main roster especially being an NXT for almost 4 years not really being featured and you know the most I had done was you know was a valet for Blake and Murphy and mm-hmm. to go onto the main roster and almost immediately you know have the opportunity to have the most you know amazing career right. um it was definitely different and um for me though it was about you know taking advantage of every opportunity, because I know, especially in WWE, those opportunities don't come around very often. And so you have to take advantage of them. And, you know, it was, I mean, I'm sure there was some kind of, you know, animosity of some sort in locker room, but I just never really focused on it. You know, there was obviously people who were happy for my success and there was people who weren't um, and who were, you know, made that very clear, but mm-hmm. you can't really focus on them because my whole thing was, you know, You're not the one in these matches. I am. I'm the one hurting my body and I'm the one, you know, doing these things. And if we want to work together, 100% I'll work with you. You know what I mean? Like we can have a story together and a whole angle and everything, but it's, it's one of those things that you got to remember that with WWE, everything, you know, what goes up must come down. And so the people that were, you know, awesome to you on your way up, you're always going to remember and you're going to want to help them back. Because you, you're only, my whole thing is, you're only as good as the person you're in the ring with. And you, you know, it takes two to create magic in the ring.
0: No, that's totally true. And, you know, I was also kind of wondering when given an opportunity like that, maybe, maybe mentally because of what you had not done, I guess, really in NXT, you wondered per- perhaps whether you were prepared for it, but you kind of got thrown into the fire. Do you feel like in those two years in particular, that you just were able to grow so much as a performer, just by the fact that you were given that opportunity to sink or swim. And the truth is that when given an opportunity, you swam.
1: Um, For sure. I mean, my whole thing was, I remember even telling my mom, I was like, cause my first WrestleMania on the main roster, she's like, she, they, cause they released tickets like months and months, like, you know, October mm-hmm. before. And then I just debuted in September. She's like, should I buy WrestleMania tickets?' I was like, no, don't even don't waste your money. I'm not going to be on WrestleMania. There's no way You know, it's going to be a few years until I'm on WrestleMania. So don't even worry about it. Watch it from home. And cause in my head, I was like, never in a million years would this happen to me, you know, and right. I never expected to hold a title. I never expected to be featured as much as I was. And you know that. And then as soon as I won the title, I was like, oh crap, you're going to need tickets to WrestleMania because I'm going to WrestleMania. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely, it felt like, for me, it was the payoff of all the hard work that I put in in NXT and, you know, leading up to that point, because I'd never wrestled in the indies, I'd never had a mm-hmm. career before coming to WWE, and so there's a lot of, you know, that's a target on your back, Um and, you know, it was, it was basically... Not proving anyone else wrong, just proving myself wrong. Because there was a lot of self-doubt and, you know, anxiety and NXT. And so I wanted to prove myself basically wrong. When I said I didn't belong here, I wanted to show that I did.
0: I'm guessing that when you, you know, first started in WWE with NXT in the performance center, that you were giving it a shot. You know, you were you had an athletic background, you were kind of curious to see if this would be something that works for you. At what point did it click in your head? I want to do this as a career? Was it during NXT? Was it when you got called up, when you won the title? When did you kind of say, not only do I want to do this, but I feel like, yeah, I'm good at it and I want to do this for a long time?
1: Um, So I actually started back in SCW in Tampa before NXT was, um, the Performance Center was even open. And I remember my first practice, I was sitting next to Charlotte Flair and there was only about, Seven girls total on the roster, and I remember watching after the first practice. I was like, "This is what I want to do," mm. because I just loved everything about it. You know, I, I'd i watched wrestling growing up. My family are my family, my mom's side of the family, specifically die-hard WWE fans, and you know, I I wasn't as passionate about it as they were, um because you know, I liked watching Rey Mysterio and Trish Stratus. But I wasn't, you know, at every show and I Mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, but I still I loved the product and I respected it so much. And I think once I saw that first practice, I knew like that's what I wanted to do. But I knew it was going to be hard work because the girls that were there had been in the ring before for years on end, And so they were so much better and, you know, familiarized with everything in the business. and. You know, I just if I was just thinking, you know, if I could just be like at least being able to keep up with these girls, I'd be happy.
0: Mm-hmm. Who who in your family, since they were all pretty big fans, who flipped out like hardest when you maybe were on first TV for the first time or when they saw you on SmackDown for the first time?
1: Oh, my grandparents and my, my aunt, for sure. Uh, <laughs> so my grandma... Like, she was such a fan. She thought she was going to marry Dusty Rhodes. My aunt <laughs> thought she was going to marry Stone Cold. You know, that was just like my cousins thought they were the Hardys and Lita is that uh, my whole mom's side of the family just flipped out and they still do, you know, they still do. Um mm-hmm. uh, my, uh, my grandma always, you know, she'll call and try to get some scoop. Um, right <laughs> about, you know, the drama that's going on on TV and, you know, but.
0: So your, gra- your grandma's the one who jumps on Twitter and Reddit and spoils everything. That's what you're telling me.
1: No, I don't tell her anything. That's the thing. Um, well, no, no, she, she, so she'll watch it on TV and then call me and be like, what? You know what I mean? Like, oh, gotcha. Lana's okay. with Bobby Lashley. What? You know what I mean? Like, she's, she's like, she's that person and it's great. And I love it.
0: Have you surprised any of them like with, you know, cause obviously at the beginning, you know, before he passed, you you were with Dusty a little bit. Stone Cold has certainly been at shows like pictures of you with them and sent them to them. Like, have, have you done anything like that to kind of like freak them out and like, Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I remember for my grandma's birthday, I had asked Dusty if he would do a little video for her. And I oh, wow. said he did a whole video in character and and I sent her a video of Dusty wishing her a happy birthday. And uh, she still has it on her computer. And uh, it was, she was cried. It was
0: great. That is incredible. And I mean, obviously you've gotten that opportunity to be around a lot of legends, but you also kind of teamed up with one in Mickey James. And, yeah. you know, she's certainly one of the greatest women's wrestlers ever, particularly in WWE. What was your relationship like with her? And was there anything... I mean, I'm sure you learned a ton from her, but is there something that you really take away, especially to this day about whether how to operate in the ring or how to succeed at this job?
1: You know, I loved working with Mickey. Working with Mickey was so fun and so just incredible because the way her mind works, you know, when, when being in the ring with her and it was so cool to just kind of always have her input and... You know, her opinion on everything. And a lot of times you just kind of always joke around with each other and do funny dances. And, you know, she's always just such a breath of fresh air and she's so fun to work with. And I really miss working with her, but I'm glad that she's back in the ring. And, you know, it's uh, maybe one day we can team back up again.
0: Yeah, that'd be cool. Now, your current teammate most of the time uh, is Nikki Cross. And it seemed like at the beginning of that partnership, it at least to me, it didn't seem like it was planned to be a long-term thing. Was that the case? And this ended up developing into something more, or did you almost have to convince them to keep you together? The other option, of course, is that it was planned to be a long-term team for a long time, but I never really got that feeling.
1: Right. Um, so with Mick, with Nikki and I, we actually both pitched to work together. We both went to Vince asking if we could work together and be be partnered together and it was such a just random pairing but it ended up working mm-hmm. and we thought it was only going to be for you know a couple weeks but then here we are over a year later and we're still you know working together and i think it's because you know it was the the pairing that no one thought would work and it clicked and um, it's been a lot of fun and you know she's she's such a ball of energy and is a lot of fun and funny and you know, it's been it's been so great to see her, you know, really come into her own on the main roster.
0: Yeah, it does seem like both of you being able to bounce and work off of each other has elevated both of your characters long term. And I think she has definitely benefited from that from that as someone who kind of came to the main roster and maybe didn't have a lot of direction. So to see that happen, I think for fans has been great. And the other thing that fans are getting really excited about right now is that you're entering a part of your career where I think you're getting the opportunity to spread your wings a little bit. When did you first learn that you were going to be part of that swamp fight? And was that something that you expected to continue afterward?
1: Um, I found out right when we were doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, I did not expect it to continue. No, I thought it was just going to be a little thing and then a little callback to next Match Challenge and then move on. But, you know, right. it's been a lot of fun and uh, I love doing things that are out of the box and completely different. And I love being able to change the character up and develop the character in different ways. And, you know, I love acting. Acting is like one of my favorite things to do and love just getting in a different mindset and of a different kind of personality. And it's been great.
0: That That's what it feels like to me. It's almost, you know, in wrestling, yeah, there have been some characters that are unique, right? In this In a similar way to this. But for a woman's character, at least to me, this does feel groundbreaking. Do you almost feel like you have the opportunity to do something completely different? Maybe not something that's never been done before, but maybe at least in terms of a a women's storyline in WWE, we're still in the midst of the evolution and everything that keeps happening, all the opportunities. Do you feel like this is another one of those opportunities?
1: Um, I think it's another opportunity to show what our women can do. You know, we haven't had you know, it's obviously not the first time we've done something like this, but we haven't seen it in a while. So right. I think, you know, anything that shows different diversity with our women and how we can adapt and change and, you know, take advantage of opportunities, I think anything to show that is, is you know, worth taking advantage of.
0: No question. I will get you out of here on this. The big question everyone wants to know, how spoiled has Larry Steve gotten during quarantine?
1: Oh my gosh. So he, his normal daily routine, especially now that I'm home with him. Mm -hmm. So he wakes up at the same time every morning. He wakes up at 6 a.m. and we take him outside, give him his carrots. He sits outside for an hour because he likes to lay out in the sun when he, when he eats and, you know, does his business out there. And then he comes in, and I have a Cheerio ball. It's like a dog treat ball that's mm-hmm. filled with Cheerios. And he plays with that for about an hour while he listens to Disney um, sing-along songs because he <laughs> loves music. And then when his sing-along songs are up, that's normally when it's around noon. It's for him to have lunch, and he'll cry if, he, if it's noon and he hasn't had his lunch yet. He's very scheduled, regimented. And then he goes back outside and hangs out with us. Um, for about another hour, he can't be outside for too long because he gets sunburned. But, um, and then if he gets sunburned, we just put like baby sunblock on him. But, um, then he comes back inside around five, five is his dinner time. And then when he goes to bed, he will put himself to bed at 6 p.m. every night. Wow, and he has his lullabies that he listens to.
0: That's pretty, that's earlier than I would expect. I mean, you know, maybe it's just he
1: sleeps uh, for 12 hours every night.
0: Wow, that's crazy. I mean, Perfect. we have a he's a pig technically right not a hog right yeah so we have a pig having a far far better quarantine than me i mean that is that seems like he's at a spa every day with you guys home that's awesome
1: oh yeah and then uh, when ryan spoiled him like for for, before we got the cd player ryan would go and uh play him music to wake up to because he loves music he just started being able to hear about a year and a half two years ago because he was deaf when he was a baby and now he just loves music and he has a little floor piano that he plays. Um, he And he loves playing with like bubble wrap and just like stuff he can push his nose against. And it's a lot of fun, but yeah, he's very, very spoiled. And he, uh, if he doesn't have his, his music or his lullabies, he'll like squawk and like get real mad.
0: That is incredible. So we, I mean, talking about coming out of a, a podcast, a brand new podcast of yours called uncool with Alexa bliss. The woman probably has the coolest pet out of anyone right now in <laughs> WWE. So you can catch Uncool with Alexa Bliss wherever you listen to podcasts Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, everywhere, wherever you're listening to the show right now, check out Uncool with Alexa Bliss and you can catch her Friday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox during Friday Night Smackdown. Alexa, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck, of course, in WWE, but with the podcast as well.
1: It's was a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Of course. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you so much to Alexa Bliss for joining us. just another uh, superstar who really opened up and decided to to not just keep it close to the chest and keep a kayfabe, but really kind of get into motivations and and recent successes. And certainly I am interested in listening to her podcast. Uh, not so much maybe the ones with some pop stars from the 90s but but maybe the ones with the Miz and, and other wrestlers. but nevertheless, uh, so thankful that she gave us so much time to talk. And it was absolutely great chatting with her. So let's move on and discuss what else went down in WWE over the last couple of days, really. Uh, things leftovers from SmackDown, for lack of a better term, and everything else that happened on Raw. We'll start with Seth Rollins and the Mysterios part 87. Rollins goes up to Murphy backstage. Murphy's not happy to see him. Rollins tells him, cheer up and go put on the new suit that I got for you. You're not even in action tonight. Why are you wearing gear? Then Rollins goes ahead and steals his iPhone. The Mysterios end up being on the King's court. Aaliyah talks some shit about Rollins. I kind of like that. And then Rollins basically brings out the receipts in Aaliyah's DMs that he gets to see from Buddy Murphy's phone. She claims Murphy's not like Rollins and storms off. Murphy gets pissed at Rollins for invading his privacy backstage, grabs him by the suit, and Dominic runs in, not to save Rollins, but to attack Murphy. So we wind up getting a Murphy match against Dominic Mysterio. And hey, Murphy got a win, right? He rolled up a 23-year-old rookie thanks to his sister's interference. That's how we get Murphy a win. All right, seriously, the action was pretty good, but you did have two amateurs whose age, combined age, average age, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, average age of 21 between Dominic and Aaliyah trying to act. So again, like last week, this is Rollins being reprehensible, being a shit stir. Everyone is tired of this feud, but... Obviously, with Rey Mysterio's injury, it kind of feels like they are kicking the can down the road a little bit, but I hope the end of that road is Hell in a Cell at this point. The question is, will it be Hell in a Cell? Will it be in a Hell in a Cell match? And if not, how and to what end is this feud finally going to finish? Because it just feels like there's no end in sight. Is it the draft that will officially end it? The draft, I think, is before Hell in a Cell, so I would guess that's not the case. I just don't know what they're getting to at this point. It feels like it's going on forever, and I'm tired of it, man. There have been so many parts of this that are good, so many parts of it that are great. But by dragging it on week after week after week, it's exhausting me. And I guess this week was better than last week, and last week was to set up this week but I just need to know where it's going. Uh, One extra note I'll I'll say here, Murphy was on Raw Talk. He ended up in storyline saying he stands by Seth Rollins and remains, his focused on the greater good in WWE, regardless of the text messages and the conversations. So I thought this was a good appearance from Murphy. I thought it told a story that on Raw, we didn't get to hear, why are you so committed to this guy when he's beat the crap out of you? And when he's basically not trying to break up a relationship, but trying to to stand in the way of you maybe having something with a woman, you know, at least they said on Raw Talk, look, I'm committed to it. We may have our disagreements, but we are on the same side. So, you know, that's something I hope they develop a little bit more and give Murphy these opportunities on television, not just on Raw Talk, which very few people are watching comparatively to Raw on Monday night. Now I have a DM slide from Tristan Atolano at Atolano underscore Tristan. Now that the clash is over and presumably next month we are getting Hell in a Cell, what are the H-I-A-C matches going to be? Orton versus Drew, Sasha versus Bailey, Reigns versus Usos two-on-one. Does The Fiend have a Hell in a Cell match? So it's a good question. I think the two that are 100% Hell in a Cell matches, no doubt about it, are Randy Orton versus Drew McIntyre and Sasha Banks versus Bailey. The only other match I think right now that would be deserving of a sell would be Rey Mysterio versus Seth Rollins, the match to end the entire thing. The question is whether Rey Mysterio is going to be cleared and are they going to put three Hell in a Cell matches on a single show? And that I don't know. I do not think we're getting Roman Reigns, Jey Uso, and certainly not two-on-one because Jimmy is not cleared. And The Fiend being in a Hell in a Cell match One, he doesn't even have an opponent right now. Two, we saw the disaster that was with Seth Rollins. The last thing they need to do is make anyone try to remember that from last year. So that's where I stand. I think it's definitely two, no matter what, one from each brand. The question is, do we end up getting a a third match or maybe even a fourth? The other thing I don't know is who the hell is going to be Roman Reigns' next challenger? I guess it could be Jay. Maybe. Like, I'm poo-pooing the question, but... There's also no one else that is an obvious challenger if it's not The Fiend. And if it is The Fiend, and they do Roman Reigns versus The Fiend Hell in a Cell, then it goes back to what I was talking about on the instant analysis, which is Roman Reigns needs to win that match. And people are going to be upset that The Fiend loses again. But Reigns needs to win. So maybe it's a scenario where they take The Fiend and Alexa Bliss and move them over to Raw, and they put you know, like an Andrade and a Charlotte Flair, they move them back over to SmackDown. And that would make sense if it goes down in that way. But again, they're doing the draft before Hell in a Cell. So do they just let feuds, they do the draft, but they let feuds continue? And then do they start the Roman Reigns fiend feud? Let's say that's what it is. This Friday, one week ahead of the draft, and then trade the fiend the very next week? Or do you kill off The Fiend, potentially? Uh, You keep him on SmackDown, but you kill him off. You don't have him get drafted. And then he shows up a month or two months later on Raw. These are all questions that I don't have the answers to them. And I think the timing of the WWE draft plays a large factor into this. And it is why I don't think the timing is great. Doing it a couple months before Hell in a Cell, when you have all these long-term storylines that you're still trying to, to wrap up. The draft should be after a show like a SummerSlam or in this case, this year, a payback where you're ready to start going in new directions. Instead, we have these this too much of extra stuff. For SmackDown, it's been good because Roman Reigns is fresh. For Raw, it's been shit because it's been the exact same storylines that we got the prior two months. And that is the issue I think WWE has set itself up in right now. That's the, that's the position, the situation that WWE has set itself up in. So let's move over to... Kevin Owens defeating Alistair Black again. Man, Aleister Black cut an absolutely killer promo before this match. He methodically tore apart Owens' character and then unveiled his new blacked-out eye and faded into the Black background. Very cool promo. Then Black comes out to brand new entrance music that, to my surprise, was a death metal banger. yes. I like his original entrance music better. But as I mentioned earlier, it's clear WWE is being forced to move away from the old CFO themes. And if Black is not going to be doing the same entrance that he used to, rising up with all the smoke and the candles and all that, then it does make sense for a darker, more evil character to have different music. And if you're going to change it, at least change it to something good. This was pretty badass. So I'm giving two thumbs up and I'm giving the okay. It's not often I do that for character changes and for theme changes. This one gets it. I liked it. He also had new gear, which is just, again, part of a total character refresh. His his wrestling was more aggressive, not as methodical as it was over, under the previous character. So this is all pretty good. And my thought the entire time is they put effort into a repackage of this guy. They better not have him lose. So the match starts hot with Owens hitting a flying senton off the ring apron. There was good work throughout, but the match wasn't overly special. Black caught Owens. Uh, he did another top rope senton. He caught it with double knees, drilled him with a V-trigger, and got so frustrated that he didn't wasn't able to pin Owens that he started pulling out his own hair. Then the match ends in disqualification after Black accidentally elbows the referee while going after Owens. They miked up Black and the ref, so that made it okay, I guess, because at least it was inventive and unique, but it was ridiculous because it was the ref's fault for getting between them. He takes an elbow and then he calls the DQ on Black. So Alistair Black has now lost twice to Kevin Owens and eaten two stunners. So really, we're pushing this down the line again for a third match where I have to assume Black's going to lose because what, are you going to have Kevin Owens lose again? So I don't really know what they're doing, but the repetitiveness on Raw every single week is soul-crushing, and they just debuted Alistair Black as a brand new refreshed character, and they have him the one, be the one causing the DQ, and him be the one, eat the stunner. Why the hell would you not have Owens in the same spot where Owens is trying to pin this new dark guy, he's getting frustrated, he's battering him against the ropes because he's a prize fighter. Owens likes to punch and brawl. Accidentally hits the referee. The ref calls DQ. Owens is upset about it and gets cleaned out, clocked out of nowhere with a black mass. Knocked unconscious. Aleister Black, new music hits. He's standing over him looking brooding and looking really angry and demonic. And you fade to Black and you go out. And now Aleister Black looks awesome. He didn't have to win the match. You still got your DQ finish, your WWE DQ finish, but Alistair Black looks awesome. And then, yes, down the line, Owens ends up beating him clean. So you get your babyface moment. I, I throw my hands in the air sometimes. Again, things like this on Raw are soul-crushing. And speaking of soul-crushing, we saw Mustafa Ali, Apollo Crews, and Ricochet defeat the Hurt Business in a six-man tag. I have a glimmer of hope here. Of course, it is totally Mustafa Ali. But here we go again. The segment with Lashley bullying the random backstage employee, that was funny. Then Ali bumps into them backstage because he was accidentally in their locker room. And he starts backing off like, no, man, it was just a mistake. Why is he backing down? He's a wrestler. He shouldn't be scared of these guys, even if it's three on one. But okay, he backs down. Cruz and Ricochet run in, of course, to break up a possible fight. So we get a six-man tag match. The faces, at the start of the match, I'll give them credit, pretty smart, they sneak attack Lashley. The match doesn't start. And then Retribution flashes in the Thunderdome. So WWE and kayfabe, the producers, decide, oh my God, we might have an attack from an outside group here. That's now an inside group, by the way. It's a perfect time to go to commercial. You would never do that, okay? You don't have Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs get to the one yard line and the, and the you know production for NFL says, you know what, this is a perfect time to go to the commercial. Or you don't have them start a drive and get to the 50-yard line. This is probably a better example. couple first downs on the 50, driving down the field, no timeouts being called, and, and production says, you know what? Let's go to a commercial. We'll get them back when they're at the goal line. That's not how it works, and you wouldn't do that in this situation either if you're a real show of any type. So going to commercial, they're idiotic. They come back, and there's no retribution, who are all reportedly quarantining at home for two weeks due to contact, contact tracing. I always... When I say those words, I get them mixed up together. Contact, tracing. Uh, They aired a recap video of everything that Retribution did later in the show, I guess to keep them on people's minds. Due to the editing and some of WWE's production work, it didn't look awful in there. Like it made them look at least okay. But what does that really say? That they only looked okay after all of the editing and post-production. And then you have Tom Phillips who introduced the segment by referring to them as the group that calls themselves Retribution. Again, it is so stupid. Stop saying that. They are retribution. Part of their promos is literally them saying, we are retribution. That's it, call them retribution. You signed them to contracts. You now own the IP if you're WWE. fricking call them retribution. It is ridiculous. Okay, back to the match. I know I'm being negative, but this is just bad, okay? Back to the match. Lots of athleticism here, but it was rather boring. However, the glimmer of hope I was talking about, you had Ali get the hot tag at the end, misses the satellite DDT, some miscommunication with MVP, but hits the 450 splash, his finisher for the win to beat MVP and the Hurt Business. Maybe we actually are going to get the Lashley-Mustafa Ali match for the United States Championship I hoped for when we talked about it on the Clash of Champions Instant Analysis. But if it's going to be surrounded by the same storyline with Apollo Crews and Ricochet, and Cedric Alexander, when he comes back, presumably another contract contact tracing scenario. Man, I hate those words together. Contact tracing. Um, but presumably, if, if it's just going to be the same stuff with the same guys, but this time it's Mustafa Ali, and this time it's Mustafa Ali who loses to Bobby Lashley. Zero point zero. They just got to freshen this up, and maybe it's going to come via the draft. But again, the draft is happening before the next pay-per-view. And it seems like they have all these loose ends to tie up. So how much of the draft is, how much is the draft going to change the product when you have a pay-per-view coming up? That is the question we all have to answer. And if memory serves, I think this was the same issue as last year. I think they moved people around in the draft and then had a pay-per-view. It may have been either Hell in a Cell or the Saudi Arabia one, I forget which, but they still let the matches go on. People won, I think there was a title change. They had to switch brands. It was a mess. I think it was the Fiend-Seth Rollins rematch where it was so bad at Hell in a Cell that they ended up trading the Fiend anyway to SmackDown. But they kept his rematch with Seth Rollins for the Universal Championship at the Saudi Arabia show. He beat Seth Rollins. The title then had to go over to SmackDown and turn blue. And then they had to figure out a way in kayfabe to bring Brock Lesnar over to Raw, and I think it was just, I'm Brock Lesnar, I do what I want, which actually was a fine storyline. But this is the mess that WWE puts itself in by not doing a draft once storylines, or most storylines at least, are concluded. And you're seeing it happen again. Uh, Moving over to SmackDown for a bit. Uh, Baron Corbin beat Matt Riddle in a pretty enjoyable surprise match that they put on TV. It was a pay-per-view quality match. So you need to give them credit because these guys work really well together. And the finish was great too with Riddle flipping through the end of days, nailing the final flash knee strike, and then missing the floating bro on Corbin at the end as Corbin then finally hits end of days for the win. That was Riddle's second singles loss on SmackDown, which wouldn't be a big deal, except he's only had eight matches total, and he already beat Corbin on a pay-per-view. So why did they have Corbin win this when Riddle had already won the feud and why are you running this match back? Again, the match was great, Storyline-wise, it doesn't make sense. You did get a feel-good promo from Riddle after the match. That was a nice, kind of cooled off the fact that he lost. But Corbin's win better lead to something. It better lead to him getting some type of title opportunity. But the problem is both champions on that show are heels right now. Are they going to move him over to Raw? Maybe. Drew McIntyre is a face. They could theoretically fight. <laughs> but you know my concern there. A, you have Randy Orton going down right now. And then once that ends, you you would guess Randy Orton's going to be champion, which means all four men's singles champions on both brands would be heels. So I don't know what the purpose of Baron Corbin beating Matt Riddle here is. I guess they're going to have a third match. I'll have the same complaint. It'll probably be a great match. Matt Riddle will probably go over and we'll talk 50-50 booking. So I don't know. Uh, Raw Women's Championship. This was the second match on Raw. Asuka defeated Zelina Vega in a rematch. We anticipated this in our Clash of Champions instant analysis due to the attack after their match on the pay-per-view and all of the women's absences on Raw. So I was totally understanding that they ran this back, especially more than I normally would be about an immediate rematch. Asuka caught Vega uh, with the Asuka lock again, got the win. Really not much else to talk about here. We'll move back over to SmackDown with The Miz antagonizing Otis, continuing to do that at this point. I'm not sure where the storyline's going if it's not Otis convincing Miz to drop the lawsuit. And if he does, Otis will put the briefcase on the line in a match. That has happened before in WWE, though I believe the only time it was lost in a match like that was when Edge beat Mr. Kennedy as part of the ultimate opportunist storyline that Edge was doing, that character that he had. So that's the last time it's changed hands. I guess this gives Otis something to do, but I don't like the idea of the briefcase changing hands. So if that is the direction they go, I hope he keeps it, but I'm just so disappointed that WWE doesn't treat Money in the Bank more seriously. We, we talked about it right after that pay-per-view. One was immediately basically cashed in because Asuka didn't have to cash it in because she was made champion. And then they gave the other to Otis, who under no circumstances should win a world championship. And they have not given any indication that he will or would consider using it for a mid-card title. Now, if he did cash it in against Sami Zayn and they feuded and he won the IC title, I would find that to be interesting, right? But as a world champion, considering the guys who are champions and challengers on both brands right now, it just wouldn't make any sense. Sticking kind of with Otis, uh, on Raw, we had Mandy and Dana Brooke defeat Natalia and Lana The promo from Natalia and Lana was surprisingly good. It feels kind of weird to say that. But then Rose makes her debut on Raw after the trade. That was in kayfabe in storyline. But then Dana Brooke winds up there with no explanation whatsoever with the draft two weeks away. That is just ridiculous to me. WWE, as I said earlier in the show, has done a pretty good job explaining roster moves they've needed to make with exceptions of Mojo Raleigh in March, and now basically Dana Brooke. Um, And you can throw in Drew Gulak as well, but that's 24-7 title, who really cares? This match was nothing. Lana almost broke her neck on what looked to be a sidewalk suplex by Mandy, which is a great move if you can execute it, but they did not. And then for the finish, Lana jumped in the air as Mandy Rose did her V-trigger. So Rose hit her in the chest instead of in the face and got the win. None of this really made sense. It was sloppy. I understand the storyline reason for Mandy being traded, but she just beat her best friend, Sonya Deville, in a major singles feud on SmackDown. And now they put her in a forgettable tag team? That's the push? No, she should be in a title feud. Or she should be winning singles matches on her way to a title feud. This is total dog shit booking. It's completely nonsensical. I don't know if the separation from Otis is final, but if it is, that's ridiculous because that was a hot storyline that people liked. This is just a travesty, what they're doing with Mandy Rose. Not that Mandy Rose is the best women's wrestler in the company and should be a multi-time champion, but in storyline, she just beat Sonya Deville in a blood feud. And now she's tag teaming with Dana Brooke because it's convenient. I'm sorry. Mark that shit zero. Before the match, Adam Pearce and commentary confirmed that Shayna Baszler and Nia Jax will defend the women's tag team titles against the Riot Squad when they're cleared. I actually thought that Mandy and Dana Brooke had a good promo backstage later in the show. That's a minor plus. Another plus, by the way, was Mandy wearing Trish Stratus' old ring gear. That was a really nice tribute. Very, it was a similar style to the pink with the black lace that uh, Trish used to wear. So I thought that was very cool. As I mentioned, the 24-7 championship situation, you had R-Truth defeat Akira Tozawa and Drew Gulak in a triple threat match, real match. Um, but this came after Truth was playing chess earlier, got a letter from Tozawa. Turns out Tozawa is alive. There's a roll-up and two brief briefcase shots and the title changes hands between Truth, Akira Tozawa, and Drew Gulak. The match itself on TV was actually pretty good. It was entertaining, I'll tell you that. Gulak nearly got a win with a Gulak. Tozawa hit a top rope senton and R-Truth ended up hitting John Cena's attitude adjustment for the win, pinning both guys. So the match was actually decent, but the storyline is just so ridiculous. You know what? At least they made me laugh with the letter with R-Truth. But again, like I just hate the way they're using the 24-7 title. By the way, Gulak maybe is now on Raw. I guess again, two weeks before the WWE draft. I just don't get why they're making moves before a scheduled event. And I don't think that they needed him to play a role in this when you have a guy like Riddick Moss, for example, or some of the other people being used, uh, Ruas or the other people on underground or whoever who could just substitute temporarily before the draft if you are going to end up moving Gulak over. A couple more things before we get out of here. Bianca Belair did a new vignette as the fastest. This was better than the first one. The strongest one, really showed off her athleticism. And it started reminding me back in the day of those Mr. Perfect vignettes. And now I want to see Bianca beating some pros and celebrities at these feats. I want to see her beating some main roster superstars at these things. The difference is that Air is truly gifted athletically at myriad things. As you saw, she can hurdle, she can run, she's very strong. I think she was a volleyball player at Tennessee, and I'm very sorry if I got that wrong. But Mr. Perfect's role a little bit ridiculous, him throwing basketballs over his head and, you know, some of the ridiculous feats. They could go in that direction with Bianca Belair and make her stuck up and pompous, and I would totally be okay with that. I would still like it. No matter what, give me more EST vignettes because this stuff, That stuff is such good shit. Back on SmackDown, we saw the third pretty lady vignette. That's what I'm calling them because I don't know what else to call them. Uh, if you didn't think this was Carmella already, that should have proven to you that this is Carmella. The Untouchable Gimmick, the name, I think it's a good one. I liked it. I know people are criticizing that WWE's tried this multiple times before with uh, Lana kind of a little bit and then Emma becoming Emelina just a woman looking gorgeous and being material? Yeah, okay, maybe they have, but it's they've never actually followed through with it in either of those cases. With Carmella, I think she will be able to pull it off. So it's a fine gimmick, no issue with it. Just have her debut already. And it's weird that they're gonna be debuting someone right around the time of the draft. So is she not eligible? Is she gonna debut after the draft? These are all questions, again, the timing of the draft and the timing of other things that are happening in WWE. Very suspect. Last but not least, there was no Raw Underground on the show, but they did mention it in a short video to let you know, basically, I guess it's not gone forever. That was to be expected though, coming off the reported COVID-19 issues in the WWE Performance Center. You can't do that segment without a crowd. All those people around there are basically PC talent, independent wrestlers, local actors, and you can't just have all those people go ahead and do it if half of them or three quarters of them or all of them are out to do either COVID or contact tracing. I got it right this time. So I'm okay with them not having Raw Underground. It did give them more time for to do other things. Honestly, I didn't miss it. I, As much as I have liked it over the last two weeks, not being on the show, didn't miss it. Definitely did not miss Retribution. Since we did our last WWE show, Retribution has gone on like all out warfare on Twitter. T-Bar, Jack has been fantastic. Mace has been pretty good as well. Slapjack has been good. Uh, Mia Yim has been very strong. So, you know, their Twitter game is really strong and I'm starting to wonder if maybe, I'm not comparing them to Dark Order in terms of gimmick, but maybe like Dark Order, their personalities and their abilities, maybe they can forcibly turn this around and make it good. I'm not holding out hope for that, but I'll at least say it's a possibility after seeing how strong their Twitter game has been. But again, I say this all the time over a variety of shows. Most WWE fans are not following all these people on Twitter. So the promos that they're doing on social media and tweets like this, if you're not showing them on screen, they're missing with a lot of people. And WWE needs to find a way to integrate all of that into the television experience. So that is it for today's show, breaking down everything that happened, the leftovers from SmackDown and everything that happened on Raw. Monday night, we do have a very busy week ahead. On Thursday, we will do our normal Wednesday night war show, but we will also have the NXT TakeOver 31 Ultimate Preview on that show. And then we will be back Sunday night once again for instant analysis of NXT TakeOver 31. Very excited to bring both of those shows to you. And then of course, next week, we will be back on Tuesday with our regular WWE episode. It will be the final episode before the draft takes place that following Friday. So it should be a really interesting show. We'll see what happens on SmackDown, the fallout from Clash of Champions, Roman, the Tribal Chief, stuff with Alexa Bliss. I'm just really curious to see what's going to be going down on SmackDown. I forgot to mention even the Bailey and Sasha Banks stuff. Are they going to have Sasha appear again? What are they going to do? Are they going to have a match at Hell in a Cell? So I'm very interested to see how these next couple of shows unfurl. And we will be with you throughout all of it here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Cast, And do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me go back to being marks for me go back to being marks for this podcast that way we can deliver every single week more of that meat on meat action put your meat on my meat man gently now please gently gently I'm delicate. The show is delicate. It's hanging on a balance and it requires your five-star ratings and reviews to make us whole. Let's get out of here. You know, there's three words left. Those are coming at the end. Before I get to that, got someone else that wants to say goodbye. get is. sport. Thank you all for listening. I will see you on Thursday. Bye for now.